This is Five on Three, center ice for all things Islanders, Rangers, and all news across the NHL on WFUV Sports. What's up, everybody, and welcome into Five on Three, WFUV Sports NHL podcast, along with Lou Orlando and Jack Warner. I'm Colin Locker, and happy to be with you, and Lou, Jack... We are four games through the 2023 Stanley Cup final. The Vegas Golden Knights now lead the series by a mark of 3-1 to one after a 3-2 to two win in Game 4 in Florida. Lou, has the magic ended here for the Florida Panthers? I'm not going to say that it's ended, but I'm scared. You know, you guys know I've been pretty much on the Florida train ever since the Rangers got knocked out. I mean... This is what this is what's scary about this this Vegas team is it feels like they're playing like near perfect hockey. I think even you look at at this this past game, game four, when when Florida had a chance to come back and and make it interesting, Vegas is just able to withstand them. They're playing really good hockey. And I think that's the thing that scares you about this Vegas team more than like anything else that you can throw out there. Their ability to control a game throughout this entire postseason. Like, yeah, I'm worried about the magic being over. I'm scared. Jack, I look at this game in particular, Game 4. Golden Knights get off to a great start. Chandler Stevenson, two early goals for them, puts them out 2-0. William Carlson makes it 3-0. Florida does fight back, though. Montour and Barkov, they put in goals of their own, ultimately a final of 3-2. Over the course of that game, though, Vegas blocked more than 30-plus shots. If they can do that, is Florida in some trouble here? I think they're absolutely in some trouble. And I do think up until this point, you know, I, I think it's a quite obvious statement that they've been they've been extremely outplayed. Um, I think even in game three with the victory, it was a exhausting win, especially with it coming in overtime. Um, I, I do think that I do think that this Florida team knows what they need to do to beat a Vegas team. It's but will they will they be able to do it? And the other thing is that, you know, Vegas has now forced Florida to play a, a brand of hockey that they haven't had to play in over a month, which is, you know, playing with their backs to the wall. They're now in an elimination game once again. I mean, we've we've all kind of observed in awe the almost the ease that they've had through this playoffs because, you know, you you win they win a series four to one against Toronto. They they sweep Carolina, which I think that was probably the biggest shock to most of us considering how close all those games were. So I think we went into this expecting it to be, even if Florida doesn't come out victorious in the series, we expect it to be a little more even keel. Um, but that's just not what we've gotten so far. I haven't, I, my faith is not gone in Florida just yet. Um, and more so less than the, the actual team itself and more because they've played in a three, one deficit against a team who, I get the Bruins went out in the first round, but against a team who I really think was better than the Vegas Golden Knights, and I think a lot of people would agree. Um, but I, for somebody who's been pulling for Florida in this series, I I, I can't say that um, I'm feeling the best I've ever felt right now. In the interest of full disclosure, I did pick Vegas to win this series in six games. So I still believe that Florida can scratch out a win in game five. For me, though, the goaltender play has to be better. Bavrovsky has to be better. I think this is becoming one of those series now where your goalie has to steal your game. We saw it in 2020. For me, that was the most apt example, even though the series was not close. There came a point when you knew if Montreal was going to steal a game, their goalie was going to have to play out of their mind. I think the same thing here with Bobrovsky. I think he has a chance to do so, especially on the road. You never know what dynamics will get into players' heads when they're that close to winning a Stanley Cup. Vegas especially, this would be their first cup in franchise history. We know that first run they had in 2018 against the Capitals didn't end as well as they'd liked it to have to. So, you know, demons sometimes rear their ugly head in the worst possible spots. If you're Florida and Bravoski, you have to stay on your toes because stealing one game, 3-2 feels a lot different than 3-1. Just as I said, you know, when we were getting on this podcast, 2-2 would have felt a lot different than 3-1. And sometimes it's just a game of inches. 
Well, I think another thing but, that just echoes the importance of of needing Bobrovsky to step up more so is that, you know, a, a loss like last night has more implications than just simply going down 3-1. I mean, now there is officially no chance for Florida to win this series in front of a home crowd. You know, they're forced not only to win three unanswered, but to have to they're forced to take two of them on the road. And, you know, as much as as much as they need to score and as much as, as as much as that's important i always think that the most important the most important key to any team's success on the road is is most importantly their goaltending well yeah i jack i i and tom i think you both you both kind of nailed it if you listen to one on one they kind of said the same thing where they said you live and die by your goaltender i, I will say this about well you know two things about game 4 i, I texted this to you jack too is that you know especially watch those last five minutes, it felt like an elimination game. So I think you kind of, you sense that urgency from Florida as well, that they knew you don't want to go down three, one in this series, the way Vegas has been playing. So I think the one thing I will say about Bobrovsky though, and I do agree that right. He hasn't been playing at the level that I think we saw him play when he was shutting down Carolina and stuff like that. I don't know that I pin at least all of game four on him though. I agree. Oh, he needs no. to be better. I think it's, I think especially you look at game four, I think, that game more than any other game in this series, I felt like Florida left him out to dry. It, it kind of reminded me of kind of what the Rangers did to Igor a little bit in that Rangers Devils series, where I mean that first goal where it's like Florida tries to do a change and you leave the you leave the Ozone wide open for Stevenson. And then even on the second goal, he's getting screened by his own guy. And there's no reason for his own guy to be standing in front of him. So I think especially on those those first two goals that Vegas ends up scoring like I really felt like Florida did not do the job in front of him to, to put Bobrovsky in a good spot. And that's something that we haven't seen from Florida. And I think that's one of the keys to this is that we're seeing Florida start to make mistakes and play Jack, as you kind of said, they're playing different hockey than they, than they have. And I think part of that is Vegas forcing them to play that hockey, forcing them to make mistakes, but we haven't seen Florida make this many mistakes and force himself into as many unfavorable situations as we have the past couple of games. I don't think Bavrovsky was at his worst in game four. I think he certainly of, wasn't his best. I, I think more of what I was going for is that if you're Florida, you're now in this position where you need a lot to go right all at once. And for me, the big question mark is, can you get an outstanding performance in net from Bavrovsky? I'm not as uh, sheepish about their ability to play one really great game of desperate hockey and steal a game. I'm a little bit more concerned about how a goaltender will come out to play in this type of situation down three one. Well, I also think this I also think this team is good enough that if you know if it was just Bobrovsky that that wasn't, you know, getting the job done, then he had a team that I think is willing to back him up. The same way that I think that if 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 you know the offense you know, if if any if any of the moving pieces in in Florida's team, you know, aren't showing up, then I think Bavrovsky's good enough to back them up. I think Florida's that kind of team that was always so, at least as we've seen the majority of this playoffs, where you really never saw both the offense and the defense and your goaltending having an off night on the same night. And I mean, think about this. We've talked about how, I mean, we've talked on pretty much every episode about how fast Florida is, how they 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 capitalize on opportunities, how they're really hard to contain, and it may not even be the most obvious scoring, you know, opportunity, and they're they're somehow, you know, getting pucks in the net. The power play has been non-existent this entire series. They entered they entered this series with one of the better, you know, success rates on the power play going into the Stanley Cup final. And th- it's been non-existent. I don't think they've cashed in on a power play yet. So they haven't. For a, I think I think been... they would have if they had a full two minutes at the end of this game. That's what it felt like. If they had gotten that delay of game penalty with like even like a minute thirty left, I think they score a goal there, and that's kind of tough luck. But no, the power play has been awful, and they're taking way too many penalties on the other side. Exactly. So for a team that's been so fast and cutthroat, especially with regard to to special teams, I mean that's been a, in my opinion, that's been a catastrophic loss in in this series for them so far. Looking at the other side of things, because for as much as we want to talk about how Florida can potentially get back into this series, we have to give Vegas their flowers as well, because, man, they have played really well throughout this entire playoff run. 
I was particularly impressed by Aiden Hill last night. I think he played probably his best game in the playoffs, in my mind. 29 saves and 31 save attempts. For someone that maybe doesn't get the credit he deserves when you look at that roster, the forward pairings they have, the defensive front, I think Aiden Hill was very good last night. Hill hasn't, like, gotten the flowers that he deserves, especially for this postseason. Like, I think even from us, right, Colin, we were surprised when we, previewing the Stanley Cup, we realized, like, Hill has the leading save percentage of all goaltenders going into the series. And it's like, listen, Bobrovsky deserves a a ton of credit, especially for the way he's played stepping up from his regular season performance. But Aiden Hill has been, throughout this postseason, just as good, if not better. And he's excellent again. You know, even... That last flurry at the, at the end of the game, Kachuk's shot wouldn't have counted, but the save that Hayden Hill would have made to stick in the pad out and knocking that down, like that's that's one of the better saves we've seen in this postseason. And then the, he had the one in game one where he just kind of dove with the stick and and knocked it down. No, Aiden Hill's been a superstar in the series, and I think he's also fallen victim to, you know, as as we talk about him not getting his flowers, I think he's also fallen victim to this this kind of weird goalie dynamic that they have over there in Vegas with obviously, you know, a decent amount of depth at the, at the goalie position. Um, but no, I mean, a couple of the high points of the game yesterday, especially for, especially for the neutral hockey fan, like none of us have teams represented in the, in the Stanley cup final. So I think to an unbiased hockey fan, you want to see scoring. You want to see, you don't want to see, no one wants to see a, a you know, a seven to five game, but you want to see a game with scoring and you want to see you want to see an exciting offensive game. And I think it was just a testament to how fantastic he played last night that I think some of the coolest moments of that game, of that entire game, more so than some of the goals in that game, were a few of the fantastic point point blank saves he made. And I mean, it started right in the first period. And I think you need those type of saves to win the Stanley Cup. That should go without saying but. As the game changes, it seems there's more of this move to it's all about the seven to five game, as you would say, Jack. And I think teams like Edmonton, teams like New Jersey are pushing it in that direction. It was kind of nice this playoff to see some great goaltending make a difference every once in a while. Now, it wasn't all the time. You still got some six to five, seven to six type clunkers. We got a seven to two in this series. Right. So, you know, I just feel like. For what it is worth, Aiden Hill does deserve a ton of credit for where Vegas is right now. The other group I do want to mention in talking about these Golden Knights is their defensemen. I have been blown away by their play. I thought they had the better pairings going into this series. Zach Whitecloud, such a phenomenal game that went under the radar last night in my mind. The four block shots, he was diving all around the ice, had a plus minus of three, so... When you look at just the different guys that Vegas has on that end of the ice and their ability to pester the opposing team and just leave their body on the line, that's what this is all about at the end of the day, is just how far are you willing to go to get this cup? You've been talking about this for a while, this matchup for a while. I think you saw it a lot in the second period. This That second period really, for, for good reason, obviously stands out to you. Vegas... That's the most dominant period I think I've seen in this postseason, even though Florida gets that pinball goal at the end. That was one of the most dominant periods I've seen in the Stanley Cup postseason. The way that Vegas just kept in the offensive zone, didn't let Florida get any chances, I think a lot of that started with their defense and the fact that they really didn't let Florida clear the puck. If Florida was able to get a rush, it was one guy while everyone else changed. And you look up, uh, Vegas has four guys back, Vegas maybe or Florida maybe gets one shot off and then Vegas has the puck right back. A lot of times they're setting up kind of that wall in the neutral zone, almost like what we've seen Carolina do. I was very impressed with what Vegas did. That second period was crazy to me. When's the last time that we've seen a team do that to Florida? Like just dominate them, outchance them 18 to four, six high danger chances to one high danger chance. Like when's the last time we've seen a team just dominate Florida for a period like that. That's what that's what stood out to me, especially about this Vegas team, is that they have that in their bed. Well, and 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 to add to that, I mean, you know, I was, you know, I sat and, and watched game four last night with my dad after after watching, you know, 
our hated rival, the Yankees, stomp on our favorite baseball team. Hell yeah, dude. And, yeah. And, um, you know, you know, Lou, it, what you said is exactly true. I mean, I remember actually saying to my dad, we were talking about it for a few minutes about how, you know, every time Florida entered the offensive zone, it seemed like they were immediately smothered. And yeah. we talked, we talked about it for a few minutes that, you know, all they needed, the only, we, it got to a point where it felt like the only way that that Florida team was going to score was if they somehow managed to get a breakaway where they're two on one. And I, I said, the only, I said, the only way that, that they, that they tie that game is on a putback goal or something freakish because there, there was no, they, Vegas squandered any and all momentum. And I mean, that's kind of been the tone their defensemen have set this entire playoffs. I mean, you can't deny, like, th- that's really been the talking point for most people about Vegas for the majority of this playoff, whether the goaltending was ever off, whether they were not able to score in a game. I think the one constant, if there's been any constants for Vegas, has been their defensive unit. I, I just think Vegas played like a perfect, a perfect game in game four both in the sense that the way that they tilted the ice in the second period, also the way they were able to withstand Florida when Florida had those hot streaks and had that momentum. Because we know with Florida, you're not going to be able to shut Florida out for really an entire game. They're going to go on those hot streaks. They're going to get sparked by a Montour goal that bounces off two defenders' legs. But the fact that Vegas was able to hang in there, just do enough to withstand it, right? Florida's going to get a couple goals. They're going to make it interesting. The fact that they were able to withstand it stood out to me. And all. Also, I was looking at the uh, hockey stat cards. Great site does like game scores, which is basically just tries to just to estimate the value of a player. The top seven game scores were all from Vegas. So when you see, even though this game was close, when you see from the metrics perspective, from the five and five perspective, how much it favored Vegas, that's what stands out to me a lot. And I think that Vegas played a really good game and they've been doing that in this series. And that's what I think makes you scared about the way this series is headed. It's not that Florida can't come back from down 3-1. We saw them do it to the the greatest team hockey's ever seen, right? It's the fact that Vegas is playing like this right now. I don't think that any team can win three straight games against them. Vegas definitely played a great brand of hockey in game four. Looking at this number, though, might say it all to me. According to Natural Stat Trick, they had 15 high-danger scoring chances in Game 4 alone. Panthers had 10. Still not a bad mark over there, but the fact that Vegas was able to best them 10 is a high number for any hockey game to have 10 really great chances. You put up 15 in a Stanley Cup final game, you're doing something right, clearly, in my estimation. I do want to move our attention to this Game 5 that is going to happen on Tuesday night in Las Vegas at 8 o'clock. Right now, the Golden Knights, the betting favorites to win, seems fitting given they will be at home in the city that is known for betting and all of the thrills that come with that. So I got to ask you guys, where are your heads at in terms of this game five? Because for as much as I would like to say, you know, Vegas has looked like the better team. They're going to close it out at home, get it done nice and easy. There's that part of me that does feel like Florida will nab game five and extend this series. And I think that's ultimately how I'm going to predict this one playing out. I think Florida wins game five, extends the series just one more game. It wouldn't surprise me. Here's where I'm at. It's kind of all in the Kachuk injury, right? Kachuk's hurt. We can tell that he's hurt. He took that hit from Kolasar in game three. He sits out 10 minutes in the third period and we have, Luke Fox of Sportsnet tweeted out Kachuk watching, walking gingerly post game, declines to discuss his ailment. But then we heard from Michael Russo, he couldn't commit to playing in game five. So that's where we're at with Matthew Kachuk is that he can't commit to playing an elimination game five game. That means that he's really banged up. I don't know that this Florida team can win without Kachuk. I don't want that to get taken the wrong way. Like Florida has a great team, they have great depth. I think Kachuk is just so crucial to the way that they play and, and their identity as a team. And I think you saw it in even the later stages of game four, the way that Kachuk is playing by the boards, right? He's not, Anson Carter kind of said this, right? He's not a perimeter player. As much as I love Panarin, like he's not like Panarin. He's aggressive. He's going to put himself in front of the net. He's going to give himself the opportunity to get those chances off the rebound and all that stuff. If this shoulder injury, if he's got any lower body stuff going on too, if that's affecting him from playing physical, even if Kachuk can play and he's at like 30%, like 
is that enough? I think he needs to be out there just for the vibes of Florida. But if if Kachuk can't give you even 30% of Matthew Kachuk, I'm not so sure this Florida team can get by. Listen, I think right they might be able to win a game off of desperation, as you said, but I don't know how much longer this series can go. Like Florida looks banged up. Duclair was hurt for a lot of that third period. Vegas looks like the team that had 11 days off. That's the scary thing. Like Vegas looks healthy. They look sharp. Florida looks banged up. I think a lot of their guys are going through injuries, but especially Kachuk. Like Kachuk looks really, really hurt, and that that terrifies me. And they ask him to do a lot night in, night out. This is not he's a huge part of their team. Yeah, it's not necessarily surprising that he's banged up at this part of the season. And Jack Lou makes a great point. When you have someone on your club 109 points over the course of the regular season, 69 assists, that's a major facilitator for your team. And he can score as well. For me, that might be the most concerning part of potentially not having Kachuk there is his ability to facilitate and make sure that other guys get to their spots and have a chance to put one in net. Well, and I have to remain consistent with what I've said on prior episodes of the show, because as much as I want to say that, you know, this Florida team has gotten this far and, um, you know, could could get the job done without him. I was the very same person that was saying that after the way that Kachuk has played this year, that there's no reason he shouldn't be in conversations with 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 players like, you know, like McKinnon and McDavid. So I. I'm going to have to agree that my I'm, I'm going to have to agree with Lou that Kachuk needs to be in that game. I think um, I'm not, I, I would, as much as I would like to say, you know, I'm trying to, as much as I would like to say that they can get the job done without him, I think not only his play, but his significance just to the team's chemistry in as a whole I think is important. And then the other thing that's important to to point out is last night's game, he was only on the ice for 16 minutes. Yeah. He only skated four shifts during the third period. So, you know, I feel like his I feel like his lack of presence, I should say, was felt. I think I think that I think the Panthers needed him last night and and to no fault of of Kachuk, because obviously he's 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 physically he's banged up. But when they can't give a confident answer right this minute, I don't think that that dooms him from playing on Tuesday, but it doesn't give me the best feeling going forward. Um, so I'm I'm going to say that Florida continuing in this series is basically reliant. I'm going to go as far as saying reliant on Kachuk being there and being present for, for, uh, for game five on Tuesday. But the one thing that I will say, is we did see just a round ago, and I understand it didn't it didn't end up in a victory of that series, but we did see just one round ago a, a Dallas Stars team that was down three zip and lost their captain Jamie Ben after he made a moron play. I can't I can't <laughs> I have to every time we bring that up I do have to mention that could be the most abysmal cheap shot I've ever seen. Um, and I'm not comparing, you know, the significance of Jamie Ben's play to to Kachuk's play or vice versa. But I'm just saying that's a captain guy. That's an important player to have around. And not to mention they didn't even have a win under their belt. They were down 3-0, not even 3-1. And and Dallas was able to to scrape a win together to keep it going. So for somebody who's important for for a team to be in a in a must-win game and be down an important player. It surely has happened before. Uh, I I will say, right, as close as Florida kept game four, they had a lot of bad performances from a lot of the guys that they rely on. Anthony Duclair had a a game score that was like negative three. Verhage didn't have a great game. So it's like, especially if you're not getting crazy, crazy stuff out of Kachuk, like the depth of this team is really good. You have other really good pieces. So it's like, I think Barkov has been amazing, but you need guys beside him to step up. So I think to get a better performance out of Duclair, to have Gudis not make as many mistakes in his own zone as he's making, right? Like, like, I think you just need to see better team play. I think that goes back to kind of what we were talking about earlier, where it's Florida's making, or Vegas is making Florida play a type of game that we're not used to seeing Florida play. And you do wonder if now, hey, 
Florida's backs against the walls, right? For the first time since Boston, after that Boston series, they basically won 11 of their last 12 games prior to this, right? So it's like they had been in this this crazy groove. Let's let's see if they can if they can turn it back on. They're going to need their other pieces to step up no matter what because you can't play a game the way you played in game four and expect to even to even be in it. I personally think they were lucky to be in within one goal uh, in game four. So I'm hearing without Kachuk, you both may be willing to tilt Vegas. Uh, listen, I think I think I'm I'm down to give them a game five desperation win. Perfect. But with if if you don't have I'm thinking more now the rest of the series if you don't have Kachuk giving you value the rest of the series, it's over. But I I can get down with a little game five comeback win. But uh, I I don't know the series is leading very heavily in Vegas's favor. I know that's the easy answer, but I think that's that's the case right now. Well, no, but also Colin to your point. I think even with Kachuk, I can't ensure yeah, a, that's true a, too. a victory. I mean, you know, th- the thing that frustrates me most about this series is that without games one and two, because if you think about a game one and two, you have a 5-2 loss for Florida and then a 7-2 loss for Florida. So when you look at those first two games, I mean, frankly, I went into game three quite nervous. It was quite reassuring to see Florida – you know, make this a 2-1 series, it at least brought some excitement back into it because no one wants, I, truthfully, unless unless there is somewhat of a comeback to to ensue, no one wants to see a 3-0. Um, and what, what frustrates me about this series specifically is the two games of hockey that we just witnessed between, between game three and game four, had those have been game one and two, I'd have no answer for you about how this series goes. Interesting. The the games three and four, if games three and four were games one and two, this could have been panning out to be one of the greatest Stanley Cups ever. Now I'm not saying there's not there's I'm not saying that there's no more time for that to occur, but it, it now it now it's reliant on a comeback. But it's just it's crazy how much those first two games set the tone because yeah. you look at you look at a, a three two overtime victory from Florida and then Vegas bouncing right back with a 3-2 victory of their own in regulation that Lou made a fantastic point in saying that the vibe absolutely felt like an elimination game with neither team on the brink of elimination. If if had those been games one and two, Colin, I'd have absolutely no answer for you as to how this series is going to go. That That's such a good point, too, because it's like, we know Florida likes the closed games. We saw that the entire Carolina series. Like we know if they can be within one goal, if they could sniff a comeback, like they're fine being in that spot. I think you even felt like they were confident in the last ten to five, you know, the last ten minutes of of game four. Like they felt like they were in it. That's exactly where they want to be. The fact that Florida in those first two games was able to pull away in game one, tied going into the third period, they scored three unanswered goals, and then in game two, it's just an absolute blow. The fact that Vegas had done that in the first two games, it's like, oh, again, we haven't seen that happen, happen to Florida at all. Vegas flexing its muscles and being able to kind of dominate, that's not something that a lot of teams have been able to do to Florida. I do think that's kind of set the tone in this series where in the back of your mind, it's like, okay, Vegas has been able to dominate, Florida hasn't, and that's really kind of setting the narrative here. Remains to be seen where this series ultimately goes. I'm riding with Florida in game five, but with the Golden Knights in six games ultimately. I like that. I like that a lot. Tuesday night in Vegas, game five of the Stanley Cup final. Doesn't get better than that. But guys, I do want to flip gears a little bit here to some local news because Rangers and Devils, always a topic of conversation in this New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area. That Rangers head coaching search, still at kind of a standstill. Recent reports say Joel Quenville, not the guy they're looking for. Lavrette and Hines, still kind of the favorites at this moment, according to some that have the feelers out there. I quite honestly don't know where I stand on the head coaching search, primarily because while I understood it was time to probably move on from Gallant, the question then becomes... Are any of these candidates that much different than what you would have gotten with Gallant for another year? It, no, 
it's anything at this point with the candidates we're looking at at most it would be a lateral move and what i think you saw happen is that the the relationship between jury and gallant just got so bad that it was they had to cut ties there was i think the players were a little tired of gallant too that they just had to make a change we know from reports that the rangers wanted barry trotz and they were looking into him as early as like november in this season and trotz kind of said like hold off i'm weighing my options he ends up taking that front office gig in Nashville. And it's like, yeah, there is no good coaching option for the Rangers. I think even Chris Drury knows that and at one point there was a quote from Drury that was like, he hasn't been blown away by any of the candidates. It's weird. Cause we're in this spot where we keep hearing that the decision could be made any day. And you look at the people that have been interviewed and really the only two options right now, it seems like are Laviolette and Hines because it does, they're not considering Chris Knobloch as far as we're concerned, they keep saying they want an experienced guy. It's not even confirmed whether or not they've interviewed Knobloch. So it's between Laviolette and Hines. I'll take Laviolette because at least Laviolette's been there, done that, gone to three, taken three different teams to the Stanley Cup final. He's got one in his bag. Hines, has he, has he, he hasn't even made the postseason yet, right? So I'll take Laviolette. But I think either way, it's a lateral move. Both guys have bad five-on-five metrics, and that was the problem with Gallant the entire season. It was the problem in the playoffs. So – I, yeah, I don't know. I Listen, I think at the end of the day, this Rangers team is talented and they can win with a lot of coaches. They won with Galland, and you, a lot of people have problems with Galland and his coaching style. So it's like, yeah, no, you're not going to be excited about any move. It's I'm almost at the point where it's like, I just want to know who the guy is. I want to know who we're going. Yeah, and, and to that point, the thing that's, I think, frustrated me more about the process of this whole coaching search and, and hearing, you know, different rumors every few days about who the new front runner is or who the next person being interviewed is, is there's been multiple points where it feels like, especially for a team that I think has what I would, what I would say is the prestige. I mean, New York is a fantastic, you know, lucrative uh, franchise. They're an original six, you know, one of the most heartfelt, most, you know, intense fan bases in the NHL. And I think for some reason, like, I think certain people can't even explain it. There's just a higher expectation out of a team like New York. I think it's more credit to just the market that they serve and the fact that, you know, uh, newsflash New York fans are very uh, needy. And it has just felt like it multiple times in this process, you can just stop and be like, what the hell are we doing? You hear a new, you hear a new, I mean, I have, I found, it was hilarious. I found a, an article on SNY that just gave you updates on like the coaching search and they just put like a new day with a time in. Like I'm looking at it right now, May 22nd, May 23rd, May 27th, May 29th. And it takes you through all of the different, you know, interview requests that they've made who their front runners are rumors from New York post writers. I mean, they, 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 they wanted, they tried to, um, they tried to interview Jay Leach from, from Seattle. You know, there was, it just seemed like there was not a lot of preparation and in them going through with this process. I'm, I was never for or against, I never really made a statement on what my thoughts on, uh, Gallant being dismissed were because while I didn't think that he was getting the job done for New York, I also didn't think that he was coaching bad enough or that the team was playing bad enough for him to be dismissed this quickly. But if the goal was to dismiss him, I feel like they at least should have. I don't, I I know it's very easy to say as, as a hockey fan, just sitting here. But I, I wish that there was more analysis into who the possible suitors were before the decision was made, because I felt like it was a very fire now, ask questions later type situation when I don't think that the season, trust me, the Rangers imploded in that New Jersey series. But when you look at the season as a whole, as well as the previous season with a trip to the Eastern Conference finals, I don't I don't think that either of the seasons that we witnessed were a fire immediately offense. That's just, that's just my view on it. So 
the way that I've looked at this firing after taking some time to think about it is pretty much how I felt about it even last year, because you could kind of see the writing was going to be on the wall in my mind. Now, I might sound crazy for that, because as you mentioned, Jack, they did reach the ECF last season. Great year for the franchise overall. But when you make the moves that they did to go out and get a Patrick Kane, a Tarasenko, veteran players that have been there, done that, your coaching style has to change. I've said this numerous times to Lou and others on broadcast before. The 2022 team and the 23 team that followed were completely different from a effort standpoint. And that's not a knock on the team that they had last year. It's just in 2022, the narrative entering that year was they'll be lucky if they can sniff a wild card spot. It was a group of kids, Lafreniere, Kako, Heedle. Those guys were playing closer to the top line than you'd like at the start of that year. So the fact that they were able to make this dominant playoff run, and I use dominant because you have to be dominant in one sense or another to come back in the way that they did against teams like Pittsburgh, to compete against a team like Tampa Bay. Carolina, that series will forever live on in Rangers lore in my mind because no one thought they had a high chance in hell to win that series. With that success, it was clear that Gallant was probably right for that team, a younger team that needed a stern voice to kind of put them in the right direction. When you lose players like Vetrano and Kopp on the younger end, still veterans, but younger, and you replace it with Kane, Tarasenko, Trocek, which, great player, didn't agree with the move then, don't agree with it now. You have to change your strategy. You cannot be that same balls to the walls s coach that you were with the younger kids you have to understand that these guys have been around the block they know what they're looking for on the ice and there's a kind of a different tone you have to take so in some ways once you make the move for these veterans you had to have known that Gallant's days were going to be numbered unless they were going to bring home a stanley cup last year i think he just glant just ruined too many relationships within the organization like his relationship with Drury, with Drury was bad, and there was a lot of ideas that Drury wanted to have happen that Glenn was opposed to, and a lot of that, I think, revolved around the way the Rangers were going to use the kids and who they were going to play defensively. And Drury's credit, he ends up getting Nico Mikola, who was a, a great ad for this team, who's the Gerard Glenn style of player on that third line, like just a guy that's going to park himself in front of the net, not really do anything on offense. Like, that's the Gallant guy. Uh, but I think you, you looked at the relationship with Drury and then the relationship between the kids who are going to be have a huge role this year and, and, and moving on. And I think I'm not so sure that Panarin got along with him either. That I think that it just became not glant, fresh start. So even if it's a lateral move coaching wise, whoever comes in is not going to have all that baggage that Glant probably would have had if he came back for a third year. That there's frustrations with Hedo, Kako, and Lafreniere about how they've been used and there's probably frustrations with Panarin about who he's been paired with at times on that second line that I think it's just fresh start and, and let's see what happens. This team is still so talented, but yeah, it's like the coaching landscape. We know this. It, it's been bad for a while. It's a bunch of retreads where if you're not going to try something new, then yeah, this is what you're going to be stuck with. One thing that I do want to add to this conversation because no one thinks it's possible, but I still kind of think there's a chance this ends up happening joel quenville feels like a rangers move for this job i i think it's more of an option than people are willing to consider i think we're all kind of hoping like let's not go there i think the rangers realistically were just hoping that mike sullivan got fired or maybe even that sheldon keith got fired and doesn't like either of that's gonna happen I don't know. They keep right. They keep waiting to make a decision. We keep hearing Quenville has to keep talking to the league about whether or not he's going to get cleared. If he gets cleared and the Rangers still haven't made a decision, we're going to get into some really interesting territory where it's kind of like, hey, how much do you value winning? Because let's be straight up. Quenville would be the best coaching option. But do you want someone who covered up one of the worst scandals that the league has seen in the past two decades, maybe even longer. Do you want all that baggage? Do you want someone that might just be a terrible person? I don't know if you want to go into that, but it's like, hey, like that's that's part of the conversation. Like, and especially I think when you just go into 
even like with the Rangers and the Pride Night, the Pride Night stuff and the the, the some of the stuff that they, that happened with that, like this is going to be a PR nightmare if they hire Quenville. But how much do you want to win? I think that like I'm not advocating for it, but I'm saying that that's kind of what the decision process is going to be. I would rather not have them get Quenville as someone who goes. I don't want. I don't want. It. I don't want it. As someone who goes to games, as fan, spends my money at the Garden, and for as much as I'd love to see the Rangers win a Stanley Cup, please, not this way. Just not this way. I don't think it's the right move for the organization, but can you imagine the tabloid circus that would ensue if they actually went ahead and made this guy the head coach? Hey, hockey would get some news coverage at least, right? It would be a Rex Ryan-esque situation to where every morning you would wake up and there would be something there i firmly believe that i just i don't think you want the media frenzy that it would be and all just all the stuff that that's going to come with that when it's like listen you can go for a coach that's probably a little worse but you don't have to deal with all the pr stuff it's going to be easier for you it's going to be easier for your players your players don't have to answer all these questions either right that's part of it players would have to answer questions if Quenville gets hired and it would be a story the whole year and it's like you just wouldn't have to worry about this and the team's still talented enough where it's like I think you could put a guy like Laviolette behind the bench and that team can still win well and and the other thing that wouldn't help with a hire like Quenville is that you already I'm not I'm not throwing out accusations here but when we're talking about the the PR storm um, it wouldn't help also having just brought Kane to the Rangers, who didn't do anything himself, but has been criticized heavily for being remarkably silent about that whole scandal. Um, I think a, a double whammy like that, bringing in two, you know, very recognizable figures, and and in my in 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 my humble opinion, the the scumbag who covered it up, um. I I don't I don't like the implications that that would that that would bring for New York, especially when their focus this year is to try to is to really avenge the avenge these last two seasons. Remains to be seen what the Rangers will end up selecting or who they'll end up selecting. Rather, one more bit of local news here, though. And Jack, I want to give you the option to tackle this one first. The Devils sending Damon Severson to the Blue Jackets in a sign and trade to me, this is a head scratcher because I don't feel like I see a whole lot of sign and trades in the NHL in the same way that we do in the NBA or other sports. I think so. I I do. I do agree with you. Trades are a little, a little spotty in the, in the NHL, but this has been kind of a head scratcher. I know I definitely, Ben, if you've if you read through Twitter at all, if you read through any social media, there are a lot of uh, Devils fans who are a little upset with this move due to the fact that um, they didn't even, you know, they they gave away a great defenseman and they they didn't even get they they just got a draft pick and it, it wasn't even a, a first rounder. It was it was it Lou was it second or third rounder? Kong was, was it third rounder? Yeah, that's what I thought. I just wanted to make sure it was a third round draft pick. So I know that when you look at that on paper, um it can seem a little bit like what, what the hell is that about? But I'm going to go ahead and take the stance that this is a win-win for the devils and for Damon Severson more for financial reasons. I mean, cash rules everything around me. And here's why, when you look at it this way, there was always a very good possibility that, that, Severson was going to get paid. I mean, he was arguably one of the best defensemen, especially in, I would say, a a, a pretty thin uh, free agent market. He was one of the best, arguably the best defensive player available. Um, so he's one. He's getting his bag. He's getting money. He's getting what he deserves. He's a he's a player that's, in my opinion, worth a lot of money. And here's where I think it comes in clutch for the Devils. I think he's worth more than they needed to pay him. And I think they looked at the opportunity cost of a situation like this. Yes, it sucks losing Severson. He was a great defenseman, and I think he he really helped this Devils team out in a big way this year. But in my opinion, they're really taking a more 
direct hit right now, a more small hit right now in the present to get a more long-term win out of not having to pay Severson whatever that next contract was needing to be. I mean, by not, you know, if by not, I think he was set to be paid. It was around six and a half million and the devil's, now not having to pay that have over $34 million in cap space. And on top of that, they're a young team with multiple restricted free agents. So it begs the question, yes, losing a player like Severson is very bittersweet. But when you look at the long-term financial uh, situation for the Devils now, especially with a team as young as they are and the amount of money that they just reclaimed I can't look at it as anything other than a win-win. I think it's just bittersweet that it comes at the cost of, you know, saying goodbye to a player like Damon Severson. Yeah, as a as a Rangers fan that's kind of dealing with this now cap space hell of we don't have really any flexibility to go out now and make moves. I, I think that there just wasn't room in this cap to give $6 million a year to Severson and also get the guys back that, let's be frank, you probably need to prioritize brat Meyer restricted free agents that if the devils kind of want to stay where they are you need at least one of those guys to come back in my eyes and it is you know it is funny we don't see a lot of signing trades i think kachuk to florida was the first one in the nhl so it is you know it is funny kind of full circle that you mentioned that uh i think it's yeah it, it's kind of what what jack said where it's nice for severson right and he had been the longest tenured devil had been there since like 2014 played nine seasons had been through a lot of ugly years where it was it was nice to see him be able to play this season and kind of enjoy some success. It sucks that he's not going to be there anymore. But the Blue Jacks who are Blue Jackets who are run by John Davidson, who used to be a Rangers guy, they're kind of doing the same thing that the Rangers did, expediting a rebuild. What do the Rangers do, right? They went, they made that announcement, hey, we're going to do a rebuild. All of a sudden, oh, we're going to sign Panarin, Panarin to 11 million AAV. We're going to trade for and extend Truba on this huge contract. Look what the Blue Jacks have done. They get, they signed Gaudreau, and now they've signed Severson, who's a good defenseman, kind of like Truba is, to a pretty big contract that a contender probably wouldn't be able to afford and still be able to make moves with. Where interesting to see how the Blue Jackets are going to play out because I think that's a move that could bite them in the butt long-term too. The same way that, listen, I should, the Rangers love to have Truba. I certainly wish, that I don't think they like to be paying him $8 million right now, right? So it's like, that's kind of where it's at with the Devils. I don't think that there was room in this cap to give Severson six million. I think he's a he's a good good defender. Gonna be tough to replace, but there are other priorities. Hearing rumors about like do the Devils trade for Tyler Hall? Is that a reunion that's gonna happen? Like, there's a lot of things the Devils need to consider. That uh, I'm not sure that Severson was was the guy they needed to have back. I do understand why Devils fans are perhaps unhappy about this though when you're long I mean, listen he was a long-term devil he's a, a fan favorite i talked to james burley he's sad about it from a cultural perspective you want to keep those guys around i think rangers fans would have a very similar reaction if say chris Kreider were to walk out the door would not obviously apples and oranges in terms mm-hmm. of production and what they do on the ice but i can get from that standpoint why you might not be thrilled about this because they're a young team. They're still building themselves into what they're ultimately going to be, which they hope is a Stanley Cup contender year in, year out. To do that, you need pieces that have been there for a long time, kind of those veteran presences. I'm not saying Severson's the be-all, end-all by any stretch of the imagination, but I get the philosophy of maybe not the smartest thing. Financially, though, very, very smart in my estimation. I think you guys both hit the nail on the head there. I think this is great news for Ryan Graves. I think this means he's probably coming back. I'll tell you that much. That's one guy that might have been happy to hear that news yeah. in a sick way or one way or another. Well, that is going to do it for us here on 5 on 3. Along with Jack Warner and Lou Orlando, I'm Colin Locker, and it's been great been talking to you all. Make sure to check out 5 on 3 wherever you get your podcasts on Spotify or the Apple Podcast app. 5 on 3 is a production of WFUV Sports.